Welcome to This Week in Hearing, where listeners find the latest in hearing care news from top individuals in our profession. Hello, I'm Bob Trainer, your uh, host for my first episode of 2022, and I have a very special treat for all of my colleagues uh, out there today. My guest is an audiologist among the top in our profession and one of my oldest professional friends and colleagues, Dr. H. Gustav Mueller. Dr. Mueller's topic for this, week of, uh, for this week's episode is celebrating 50 years of hearing aid fitting. We have changed the venue slightly from my usual study with all the books over, over here, wherever, wherever that is, uh, to, the, to our bars, because a celebration should actually take place in a bar rather than in a study. And, uh, and after all, it's five o'clock somewhere anyway. So I think, uh, uh, Dr. Mueller, I think we need to uh, have a little champagne to begin the celebration of 50 years of hearing aid fitting. <laughs> hey, that, you know, that, that sounds fantastic. I was I was sort of guessing that that bottle you sent, uh, which by the way is, you know, it's, you, you know, you didn't spare any cost on this. Uh, I was sort of thinking that that was for today. Uh, so, and I've already opened it. That's how convinced I was. Well, that's so, okay. I popped mine to kind of make sure that everything was going well. So I think that I will simply uh, pour myself a glass. I've been waiting for half an hour for this. And um, as soon as you're ready, we can have a good cheers of 50 years. Because I'm thinking you you probably got 50 years in you, too. I don't know. Oh, me? I'm, sort I'm, of a personal I'm, question. <laughs> but, but cheers. And here, here we, we go. go. Now, I, just, I just have to ask, will I be getting a bottle like this every week? Or was well, this just it, one that'd time That would be thing? nice, uh, but I'm, I'm not sure our publisher could afford that. Okay. That All right. In our, in our uh, This Week in Hearing. Uh, All right. Well, 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 thank you. Thank you much. So let me let me take a couple of minutes, uh, Gus, to uh, to do a little introduction for for because because many people are younger and they may not have an idea of the contributions that you have made to our profession over the last fifty years or so. Uh, and uh, Dr. Mueller holds faculty positions at Vanderbilt University, the University of Northern Colorado, and Rush University. He's a consultant for WS Audiology and a contributing editor for Audiology Online, where he has a very successful monthly column called 20Q with Gus. If you haven't seen that, you need to take advantage of the CEUs offered by that particular column. Dr. Mueller is a found, founder of the American Academy of Audiology, a fellow of the American Speech and Hearing Association, serves on the editorial boards of several audiology journals and is a consulting editor for Plural Publishing. He's an internationally known workshop lecturer and has published over 200 articles and book chapters on diagnostic audiology and hearing aid applications. He's co-authored 12 books on hearing aids and hearing aid fitting, including the recent three-volume Modern Hearing Aids series. And I think you did that one with Todd Ricketts and Ruth Bentler. Yep, absolutely. Uh, and, uh, uh, but uh, also on the lighter side, 
Um, Gus has, has, has been kind of a, a populist with, in audiology, calls himself sometimes Fun Gus, uh, <laughs> which is uh, an interesting nickname for some of us. But it'll, um, it'll grow on you. It'll grow on you. <laughs> okay. And, uh, but he also has a website called eartunes.com. And if you younger audiologists haven't been there, uh, it's an interesting place to be. Uh, songs like My Old Man's an Audiologist and on and on and on are, you will find them there. And uh, he resides currently in a tropic North Dakota island, which is nestled, I think, somewhere between the tundra and reality, but really Absolutely. just outside Bismarck. So with that, uh, you know, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd like to start asking some real serious questions here, Gus. So um, no that's why we're here. So where were you when you dispensed your first pair of hearing aids? <laughs> good, good question. And indeed, it was almost exactly 50 years ago to the day uh, I'd gone into the Army and they sent me to a little course to learn how to march and things like that. Uh, I was an audiologist at the time. And then um, they, they knew Army audiologists at the time, Don Worthington was the chief out at Walter Reed. Uh, they knew that most of us coming in uh, came from a pretty crappy master's program and didn't know what we were doing. So they sent us to a two week um, audiology boot camp at Walter Reed. And so um, I went out to, in December of 1971, I went out to Walter Reed and uh, we were assigned eight patients a day or 10 patients a day. And they sort of evaluated our clinical skills and gave us remedial work. And of course that was the military. So it was fine then to fit and dispense hearing aids. Audiologists in private practice weren't doing it for six or seven years later. So that's where I actually dis fit, fitted, dispensed my although pair, you know, we now said pair of hearing aids. Pair. It took us it took us fifty years to get there. So get the in pair. those days, in those days, you only fit monorally. So that's where I fit my my fit fit my first patient, but with only one hearing aid. So uh, so that, course, was, that was a start. Of course, the techniques, Gus, were very very critical at the time. And scientific, scientific as well. <laughs> uh, so you know, I remember an article that you did with a with a with a group from uh, Walter Reed, um, and didn't you do a study about the Hang Three method? And I think this actually changed the way hearing aids were fit. Uh, I remember it the early '80s or something like that. It yeah. was really changed things. Well, the well, well, first of all, for for um, any young viewers who might be out there. Uh, the method of fitting hearing aids in that day, called, which was called the Carhartt method, which 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 was no compliment to Carhartt at all, um, because it really wasn't the way Carhartt fit hearing aids. But anyway, it was to we had on a wall probably about thirty hearing aids that were on consignment because every manufacturer would come into town, take you to lunch and say, hey, would you like to take one of my aids on consignment? And of course you would, you had a good lunch. So you had probably 30 different products on the wall. And then when you saw a patient, you would pick three of those. Why three? I don't know, but it was always three, mainly because that was the time you had to do the testing. And you would do repeated speech measures. Um, actually, we often did do uh, speech and quiet and uh, word recognition and background noise. And we tested these three hearing aids. And that was the way we fit hearing aids in the early 70s and actually into the late 70s. And anyway, my, my doctoral dissertation 
had to do with um, comparative testing of hearing aids. Uh, and so when I finished that up in 1976, and I received an assignment out in San Francisco, I thought would be a really fun study is to do that traditional method, except embedded into it, we would, um, we would test um, the same hearing aid three times. So we really tested five hearing aids, but three of them were the same hearing aid. And this is the study that you probably remember, Bob. And, uh, and what we found to surprise of hopefully nobody, that we saw the same differences among the same hearing aids as we saw, saw among different hearing aids. Now, the study you were talk, talking about, um, coincidentally, I was then assigned to Walter Reed. Uh, when I got there, uh, Dan Schwartz and Brian Walden had already started their own study, which was similar, but it was much more elaborate than the one I did. And, and they found exactly the same thing, that this comparative approach didn't work very well. In fact, it didn't work at all. Uh, given the, the problem was the very variability of the speech material was greater than the variability of the hearing aids because we tended to pick hearing aids that were very similar. Uh, also happening at that same time, I might add, was audiologists were starting to go into private practice. We're now talking later in the 70s. Um, Thornton and Raffin came out with their paper on when is a difference really a difference? And we saw that you needed to have 16% or so uh, difference before it really was a difference. And we were starting to fit custom hearing aids and you didn't have three hearing aids to the test. So you put all of that stuff together and you have a perfect storm not to do repeated speech testing, which had been the cornerstone of hearing aid fitting for God, 30 years maybe. You know, and, and as I recall, one of the studies you guys did where you were doing repeated speech measures and taking the same three hearing aids in each time, uh, they always chose number two. Yeah, not, not always. Um, that, was, that, that one was my study, uh, 19 out of 24 times. So I think what I used to say in uh, jokingly, of course, that of if course. Whatever, whatever, whatever company had the free trip to Hawaii, always test that one in second. <laughs> you'll, you'll, be in, you'll be in good shape. Oh, man, the ethical. Just a joke. It was a little joke. I'll have an ethical time with that. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, wasn't this also the time prescriptive hearing aids were coming out as well? Well, um, to some like extent, you know, and some of, yeah, of course. Um, you could go back to 1945, which was Sam Leibarger, but then we all got into this Carhartt repeated speech thing, and we sort of forgot about prescriptive fittings. And that there, there'd be methods that would come out, but the one that really made a difference uh, was the one by Ken Berger. And I think he uh, published that in 1976, but he started traveling around the country doing workshops on why this prescriptive method uh, was better than the repeated speech testing. And, and of course this was, um, we were looking, I mean, if you're gonna dump repeated speech testing, you need to have something to hang your hat on. And so this was what we hung our hat on. Um, Dennis Byrne over in Australia was publishing his, the very first NAL procedure also about that time, but for some reason, we didn't really pick up on that very much. It was in Scandinavian audiology. Um, it was a little more complicated. Berger's method was pretty simple, but I have to say one interesting thing about Berger's method, uh, because I used it for six, seven years. 
um, is that um, the, the way he collected um, the data, the way he determined targets was he actually brought in a lot of people who were using hearing aids and measured the gain that they were using. Well, at that time, the hearing aids were BTEs uh, with big tone hooks and they didn't have dampers in them. These tone hooks had a resonant frequency around 1500, 1600 Hertz. So his data then showed that people were using hearing aids that had max gain around 1500, 1600. The only reason they were using it is because that's what somebody fit them with. But it then that then was his prescriptive method. And it was always puzzling. It's like, why do I want all this gain here? Of course, it made it easy to fit to target because that's the hearing aids had that. Then a few years later, Telex and Mako were really the first two companies who started to put dampers in the tone hooks, and then you got a much smoother response. And to add one more thing on the prescriptive thing, then as we get into the 19, um, well, let's see, 1980s, then we started to see the other prescriptive methods that you know maybe some people know about, like Pogo. Um, Cy Libby thought Pogo had too much gain. So there was the Libby one third gain. Pogo was basically one half gain. And then there was the Revise Now, which came out, I believe, in around 1976. And so by that time, we had, we had a, a, quite a family of prescriptive methods to choose from. The problem, uh, and this might be your next question, but I'm gonna answer it anyway. The only way we had to verify these was through functional gain. And, and functional gain was just a mess. You know, I, I could tell, you know, you, you could write a, well, people have written papers of all the things wrong with functional gain, but it was all we had because if you needed 25 dB of gain, you had to have a way to determine if you really had it. So we were all doing functional gain. Again, for the younger listeners, viewers, um, that means you go into the sound field, you test the person unaided, then you test them aided, you subtract the difference, and that would be their functional gain, which, by the way, is the same as insertion gain. And of course, of course you have to watch out for some compression kinds of issues. Oh, that's yeah, of course. Yeah. And, and well, so you got to mask the non-test ear. You have masking from the hearing aid. You have, as you say, if you got a WDRC hearing aid, you're, you're, you're not really testing what you, it, it goes on and on and on. And it sounds like you've done some of that in your day too. Uh, well, yes, after a number of years in practice, of course. Uh, and and by, by sitting in the audience for some of Dr. Mueller's very fine lectures, I learned a whole different way of doing. Well, I hope I didn't. I hope I didn't say anything good about functional gain, but it was it was all we had. I yeah. mean, we 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 didn't have a backup plan, so it was either functional gain or G Bob. How does that sound? <laughs> well, you know, it's almost like that's kind of how we started. Hey, yeah. Hey, Gus, how does that sound? And you said, Yeah, well, that sounds okay. Now we, we a lot like of people to think are that still we were... doing that, even with all the things we have today. They're still saying, Hey, Gus, how does that sound? Well. That does happen. It does happen. So, uh, uh, well, about this same time, the pro microphone verification uh, was coming out. And I know you were really active in, in the, the, not only using the pro mic systems, but also in some of the developmental kinds of things regarding these products. Well, you know, um, as I mentioned in 1979, I was assigned to Walter Reed. And I was very fortunate because a, um, an early adopter there, as early as you could get, was an audiologist, Dan Schwartz. 
And uh, Dan had uh, worked, some worked around a way to get one of the first big fry units. And at the same time, he was able to get a hold of um, a device that Dave Preves had put together that coupled to this fry system that you could actually measure ear canal SPL. So we were doing that in the fall of 1979. Um, one of the downsides is the way you measured it was you actually put a hearing aid microphone uh, down in the ear canal. Whoa. Uh, and you can only guess what that was like in a gooey ear. Uh, we tried, we came up with everything we could think of. The good news was uh, we collected a lot of measures and by the 1st of April, we had enough to submit for an ASHA paper. Uh, that was back when audiologists went to ASHA. And uh, so we submitted an ASHA paper, which we presented then in 1980, which I think was, that was 40 years ago. I think that could have been one of the first probe mic papers, uh, pre if not the first presented at a, um, at a national meeting. Rastronics then came out with their system a few years later. After Rastronics, um, we had, um, <clears throat> who else? Uh, Manson, of course, was big, the IGO. Um, uh, B&K had a system, Bosch had a system. Um, there was one from South Africa that you bet I know, you know, Bob, uh, the Acoustamed, uh, Charlie Anderson uh, repped that, Chris Schweitzer did some work with them. So we, by 1986, I'd say we had five or six different um, probe mic systems to use. I know we were at Walter Reed and I still remember putting in the order um, to buy six of them because uh, we wanted one in every fitting room. And well, so I, I remember to... buying a, uh, a Rastronics. This yeah. dates, dates us as well. But I remember buying and having a Rastronics in the practice. And then when that thing wore out, kind of wore out or couldn't yeah. find stuff for it anymore, uh, then I did the IGO system. And, yep. and uh, now the others, uh, I think the IGO lasted quite a long time. And then I had to upgrade for to get some of the other formulas and those kinds of things. But um, Yeah, and, and you might say, well, why didn't I mention Verifit? And that's because I'm sort of doing it decade by decade. Yeah. Um, Verifit didn't come out the black suitcase version, I believe, uh, then called AudioScan, um, didn't come out until I think 1991 or so. So all of this that I was talking about now all happened in the 1980s. Well, you know, with all of this, this stuff that's going on with all this fabulous equipment that's being invented and upgraded and modified, we, we thought, that, well, I mean, most all of us thought that everyone would be doing probe mic measurements and, uh, and it would be uh, part of training programs, which is part of training programs, but even after the training programs, a lot of the people are not doing verification. So we thought there'd be a lot of that going on. And, and, and uh, I, I, I'm really not sure what happened with that. Maybe you can enlighten us on that. <laughs> Jeez, you know, that's the million dollar question. Um, I, I, actually, that's an old saying, isn't it? I guess it should be the billion dollar question today. Um, yeah. the, I mean, to, to me, this isn't, this isn't rocket science. I mean, imagine if you were you were in construction and you were building houses and you had had to pace off the dimensions by walking. And all of a sudden, somebody walked up to you and said, guess what, buddy? I have a tape measure. Why would you not use the tape measure? I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. 
Yeah. I, I don't get it. Yeah. We we assumed, everybody assumed that that audiologists would use probe mic equipment like cardiologists use a stethoscope. It, it's part of your practice. I'm just going to say, well, why, why do you think people haven't done probe mic measurement? I, I think... I think because you can get by and you can make a very decent living without doing probe mic. You know, I mean, if, if you don't use your, you don't lose your license if you don't do it, um, you don't go well, to jail. Unless you're at Costco, you can lose your Costco job by not. You could, you could. And, and guess what? And guess what? They do probe mic. I, but I have to mention, yeah. there is a difference between doing probe mic and verifying hearing performance with probe mic. Yep. I know many clinics um, that get audited by their supervisor or a traveling supervisor. And so what they do is they fit to the manufacturer's first fit, don't change a thing, but then do probe mic. So when they go out to their state meeting, they can say, well, I do probe mic on every patient, but that's not the point. The point is you fit to a validated target using probe mic as your tape measure, right? Yeah. So, and, so and why people don't embrace it, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. What, what, you know, some people probably assume that if you click on the NAL target inside the software, no matter whose software it is, uh, you get a fit to an NAL1 or an NAL2 or some sort of a specific fitting. And, and I'm not so sure that that's true. Well, I am. <laughs> it's not. You would know. Uh, unless it changed in the past year. Uh, you, you know, you're right. It, it could be that uh, I guess you could just have this belief that somehow this, this could magically know uh, the volume of the ear canal and all the other characteristics of that particular patient. And you could assume that the manufacturer didn't purposely tweak the NAL a little bit um, just to make it more pleasing to sound. But, but there is no shortage of literature, uh, uh, independent literature on this particular topic that shows that with, a manu with the default now of any manufacturer, and again, um, this, if things, could, things change and this might not be true in the past year, um, people usually do a study most every year comparing you know, the big six uh, but the, almost all the research that's been published shows that you will underfit for average by around six to eight dB. And remember, many of these algorithms today are more linear than I think they should be. So if you're missing um, average by that much for soft, which is some could argue that that's more important than average uh, for soft sounds, you're going to be missing targets maybe by 12 dB or so. That's a lot of audibility to not give your patients. I encourage any of you to sit down in front of your TV and turn it to where you're just barely hearing sounds and then turn it down another 12 dB and it's going to be inaudible, you know? And that, that's, what we're doing to, that's what we're doing to our patients. You know, I might toss in right there that um, Louise Hickson did a really interesting study a few years back maybe it's been back 2014, 2015, something. She looked at all these attributes, over 50, I believe, of what could determine hearing aid satisfaction, and then came up with the ones that were, were significant factors. 
And um, the first couple probably wouldn't surprise us. Uh, one of the factors was you had to have a great attitude to using hearing aids. Uh, secondly, you had to have uh, you had to have a good support system. But the third factor was match the target for soft sounds. That that was the third factor, and I think that we totally. Um, dismiss the importance. I know some clinics that don't even try to match targets for soft. They match targets for average and go on their way. And let me add one more thing about how we're doing out there. Uh, Ron Levitt, I'm sure you know um, Ron, Bob. He has a, <clears throat> a practice out in Oregon. He, um, he uh, published something oh, three, four years ago. He runs um, oral rehab classes over the weekends and people come in from all over Oregon. And so over the span of a couple of years, he had tested uh, around a hundred people who had been fitted somewhere else. But before he enrolled them into rehab, he of course wanted to make sure they're fitted correctly because what's the point really? Right. So anyway, he, um, hey, I remember his data showed that of the group that he had, 98% of them were 5 dB or below target this is for average on um, for, for 98%, I think 97, 98 were below, were 5D or more below target. And the sad thing was 70 some percent were over 10 dB below target uh, when they showed up at his clinic. This is, you know, this isn't right. So, so what do you think about these, uh, these now manufacturers, I think are beginning to put some automatic probe mic fitting within to their software. Yeah. Um, now, are, are those, uh, I mean, are they kind of like nothing or are they kind of a little better than nothing or are they similar to other probe mic uh, systems like a Verifit or something like that? I think there's something, um, not nothing, there's something. Um, they, it requires a little bit of thought, but, um, but yeah, um, what we know about this, there's been six or seven studies that have been done um, relative to this. I should mention that essentially all probe microphone manufacturers are affiliated with one or two companies. They might not be, have, they might be not linked to all companies, but, but they are linked to at least one or two companies. Um, so you, you, you know, if, if you know your favorite company, then you could easily find out what probe mic equipment partners with that particular company. And I believe all companies have this particular system, which I'm going to call auto rem fit, uh, because every company has their own way of doing it. Um, here's what we know. It will be faster. Um, it probably takes about half the time that a careful clinician fit would take. So it's going to be faster. Some people think that's important. Uh, so this would help. Um, we also know that for fitting to average, they probably will de deliver a fit that is close to what a careful clinician would get. Probably better than what a careless clinician will get. Um, and so we do know that. This is for average. Now, here's the two things to consider. Um, number one is... As I just mentioned, I'm talking about average. There are some of these systems that only fit to average. So you could have a very nice fit to average, but you might be off by 10 dB for soft. Well, if you, if you go back then and match to soft, 
you just screwed up average and you're going to have to go back and refit average, which means you ruined the whole, that, that destroyed the whole purpose of doing it in the first place because you've gone back to a clinician fit. That's one thing. <clears throat> the second thing, which is even more important, is I just mentioned a little bit ago that most, if not all manufacturers have modified the NL2 to their liking, which means if the manufacturer software is the boss and is controlling the probe mic system, it possibly could fit to the targets that in the manufacturer software, not the true now. So you might have a beautiful curve on the screen, but it's not the real now. Um, I happen to know one company, Verifit, will not partner with a manufacturer unless they're allowed to use Verifit targets, which are the true now targets. So if you're using the Verifit, you, you know, then you're really fitting to true now. I would recommend for those of you who are doing this, that the first couple of times after you finish and you got this beautiful fit, then run another curve your traditional way um, where you're um, using the ISTS and just your, your typical way of fitting hearing aids. If it truly is fitting to the correct now target, then, then it should be a match. So yes, it's good, but you have to think a little bit, be a little careful. So, um, so, so that has some promise, it sounds like. Uh, maybe over, over time, that'll get even better. Um, yeah, I think that. A lot of things do. I mean, if, if I work for a probe microphone manufacturer, I, I, one of the things and I was sitting in a sales meeting, one of the things you'd say is, we have this fantastic thing. It works perfectly. It's been around for 30 years. Why are only 30% of audiologists using it? And you, you collect all the, all the reasons people give you a no, and then you try to counter those reasons, okay? So one of the reasons, two of the reasons would be, some people say it's too complicated to learn, which is bull crap, but people say that. And some people say it takes too long. So this should solve two of those, two of those things. Um, I, I don't know if it will move the needle or not, but it's certainly, it's, I think it's a useful advance. Super. Well, you know, moving just a little bit ahead now from 1990s, 1980s, 1970s, um, it's, it's not going to be too long before we're going to have a lot of self-fitting products. I suspect and, that'll be true. And uh, I think there's some of them that are already out there. Um, what kind of uh, uh, what kind of thoughts do you have on this self-fitting instrumentation? Uh, that kind of goes against all of our of our uh, formula fits and and probe mic measures and some of those kinds of kinds of things. Well, you know, instead of us asking the patient how does it sound, they're they're asking themselves how does it sound, right? Um, yeah, you know, it, it's you can look at it in two ways. You can say there are people out there who are never, never going to use hearing aids uh, or they won't use them for 10 years. If you give them a model, a way to, to obtain hearing aids that, that's lower priced and that they can fit themselves, um, that's better than not using hearing aids at all. And I think that's probably true. Um, but then you can look at it the other way is what if a lot of these people would have gone into an audiology clinic anyway, uh, and they would have been fitted hopefully correctly to validated prescriptive targets, would they then be better off? 
I think the answer is yes, if they were fitted, um, if they were fitted correctly. You know, I, I've over the years, uh, back in my military days, you know, we, we of course saw tons of hearing aids and you, you learned a lot about, and also through research projects, um, how people select what they believe is best for them. And so I think one of the things that we have to ask um, is how good is a patient at really choosing what is the best for them? I mean, anybody out there fitting hearing aids today knows that they're not very good at picking the best audibility for high frequencies because they say it sounds tinny and they want you to turn it down and then you have to make a decision. What do I do? Do I, do I turn it down to make them happy and put a smile on their face? Or do I leave it where it is and tell them I'm the doctor, you're going to get used to it? Or do you do some kind of compromise? Uh, and, you know, this is what people face every day when they're fitting hearing aids. But if the patient is, is in charge and doing all this themselves, there's no compromise. You know? Nobody's telling them that these high frequencies are good for them. And now, you know, you might, you might say, well, wait a minute, they'll go in someplace and, and turn it up, turn up the highs and they'll go, oh, my God, this is fantastic. And maybe that'll happen, but you know, I have to say, here's, here's um, well, let me give you a couple examples. Um, we, we did a study several years ago. Um, this was actually a capstone project and I'm sorry, but I don't rem rename, remember the name of the fellow who did it. But anyway. If they're listening, I bet they'll remember. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know, I'll get, I'll get an email the next morning, I bet it. Anyway, he's from Michigan, I can say that. Uh, anyway. Um, what we did in this study was fit everybody uh, to wide dynamic range compression, very carefully uh, match targets uh, to soft, average, and loud. And then what we did is we had this scale that Catherine Palmer and I developed called uh, the PAL, Profile of Aided Loudness. Find yourself a PAL for tomorrow. And what this is, is patients do subjective ratings uh, we had the norms on there were collected from normal hearing people. So we had four different environmental sounds that normal hearing people rank soft, four that they rate average, and four that they rank loud. And so the, 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 if you believe in loudness normalization, your patient should go out and when they hear those sounds, now we didn't deliver them to them. They were sounds that you'd normally hear in the environment, like yourself breathing was rated number two on average, okay? Soft, okay? So anyway, our concern was soft sounds because if you recall that most people don't like soft sounds. They hear themselves walking on carpet. They hear rustling of paper. They hear this, they hear themselves breathing. I don't know what all they hear. They don't like it. And it's common for some audiologists to simply turn down soft sounds. But we, that wasn't possible in this study. There was no adjustments necessary. And we followed them for eight weeks. Well, after one week, these people rated soft sounds number four, which is average sounds. So they thought that soft sounds sounded like number four. After two weeks, they rated them number four. After six weeks, they rated them number four. And it wasn't until eight weeks that they rated soft sounds 2.5. Uh, my point being is if you're fitting yourself, you're not gonna, you're not gonna wait eight weeks. <laughs> you're gonna wait a couple minutes and turn it down. You're not gonna go through acclimatization. There won't be acclimatization. And acclimatization is so critical for, for the brain to, to do its thing. Um, a second point along those same lines, Bob, I'm sure you remember um, Larry Hume's study, the one that got a lot of uh, press and a lot of discussion 
from um, AJA back in 2017, I'm going to say, which was Larry had the consumer decide model, the, the audiology fit model, and another group called the placebo group. And in the placebo group, they went through the same motions, except when they were fitted, they were fitted with hearing aids that had zero dB gain. Okay. Then the people went out and they used their hearing aids for two months, I think it was, and they did all kinds of ratings on the AFAB and all these different scores and all that. And as you would hope and expect, the people on the placebo group did not do as well as the other two groups. But the point I want to make is th these people paid for their hearing aids. And at the end, they had a chance to either keep the hearing aids and get a refund or keep the hearing aids or get a refund of the placebo group. These are people with zero dB of gain. 32% chose to keep their hearing aids. They had no gain. So, you know, then that makes me wonder when people are outfitting themselves, how many of them will be walking around with no gain? You know, I, mean, I guess say, they're happy. And then say, this thing really doesn't work very well at all. You know, that kind of thing. No, I might say there, there are um, published studies from uh, respected researchers that say that people are pretty good at fitting themselves, that they come within a few dB of the now. Um, so I could be wrong on this, but my experiences has been that people like their hearing aid to not sound like a hearing aid, and they tend to pick a response that's the same as their REUR, because that's what they've been listening to all of their life, you know? They yeah. take whatever the insertion loss was and compensate that with gain to make it sound back what it sounded like with an open ear. But maybe this whole thing's going to work. Uh, you know, if it gets more people using hearing aids, that's good. My concern is it's also then going to have a whole group of people that will simply think hearing aids don't work very well. But well, you know, it, it's here and, and, and we're, we're going to live with it. It's not like it's not going to be here. I also think it's a it's a good good reason for people to begin unbundling some of their fees. So when these people come in with no gain, then they can refit their hearing aids and set them up with some sort of a some sort of a program to facilitate that, rather than sure. try to sell them something else. Um, yeah. Anyway, there's, there's a lot of. Um, I'm just happy I'm not a young person sitting in private practice right now because uh, that, well, in some cases I wish I were, but uh, I don't because there's a lot of decisions to make of how to, how to tackle all this. And, and, you know, I, I, I read the different opinions and, and I read one and go, yeah, you know, that sounds okay. And then I read another one. Yeah. Well, that sort of sounds okay too. And uh, fortunately I don't have to make that decision, but. Uh, well, you know, uh, Gus, we could do this all night and we could uh, uh, interact and banter and so on. But I think we should have one last toast to that first set of hearing aids that you fit 50 years ago. <laughs> and uh, so here's, here's to the, uh, our, 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 our Dr. Gus Mueller fitting his first hearing aid in <laughs> January of, uh, what year would that be? That'd be- December, December of 1971. December um, 1971, 50, so we, over 50, uh, 50 years and a week ago or something like that. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, very good. Here we go. Thanks, thanks for the invite, Bob, and thanks for the champagne. And uh, that's uh, that's the history as Gus knows it. Okay. Uh, with, uh, and I might have got a few dates wrong, but I, I think most things are pretty close. Well, to 
to, to our colleagues that are out there and put up with our banter and our interactive uh, skills today. I want to thank you for being part of this week in hearing and our tribute to Dr. H. Gustav Mueller's first hearing aid fitting. <laughs> Very good. Thanks.